Okay, it's uh, time to get your Bibles and turn to God's Word together. We are continuing our study in Second Peter. It's taken longer to get through this first chapter of Second Peter than I'd originally intended. I was going to do it all in one week in religion. That was my plan. Um, but um, we've gone slower because I think there's so many things here that we need to just stop and think about and to spend a little bit of time considering because uh, they're so applicable to our own lives, our own walk with the Lord. And we, we've seen Peter build this picture and encourage us to walk a deeper and closer life with Jesus Christ. He's spoken to us again of the reasons why we should be doing this. And if you remember in the last uh, session last week, we were looking at this uh, incredible eyewitness experience that Peter recounts for us. And Peter says that we've not followed these cunningly devised fables. We've not made this up. This is something that's true. And um, last week we spent time looking at the, the eyewitness accounts that we have recorded in scripture, uh, talking about the fact that this is not just some fanciful story, and, and nor could it be. Uh, it's too detailed, too complex. No way could this be just the work of a one man, and nor would it have been, because as we said last time, almost all of the disciples, the apostles, were put to death for their faith, um, those that were walking with and around Jesus. So we're going to jump in in a moment to uh, verse 19, and we're just going to try and cover three verses this morning, but you'll see why in a moment when we get there. But let's just bow our heart one more time as we uh, just come to God's word together. So Father, we just now ask for your blessing upon this time. Lord, open our ears, but Lord, most importantly, open our hearts, we pray. Lord, we want to grow in knowledge and grace. We want to learn of you. Father, just impress upon our hearts, Lord, the things that you would have us learn. Um, Father, just take away any preconceived ideas. And Lord, I pray also this morning that you would just remove any doubt that we have, that you are in complete control. And Lord, as we see how much in control you have been of history, and Lord, in regard to prophecy particularly, Lord, help us to remember that you are the same God yesterday, today and forever. You're the same God who loves us, has bought us with a price, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Lord, help us to trust you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just look at that uh, verse that we really focused on and majored on last time. And this verse from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, For we've not followed cunningly devised fables and we spent a bit of time looking at this that word again uh the sophizo in the greek which is where we get sophisticated a bit of saying you know we didn't make this stuff up this isn't just some sophisticated story that we put together uh, but he makes the point that he was an eyewitness of the events that he records but peter is now going to take us on from that and tell us that there's something even better something even greater than the personal testimony of somebody who actually was present and saw these things. Because the problem is that skeptics and critics will always doubt whatever they're told. You know, we can say, you know, we have eyewitnesses, but I don't believe that. Well, how do you deal with that challenge? Well, Peter's going to give us something now that he says is better, more solid, more reliable in a sense, uh, and more compelling than even an eyewitness account of these things. Now, in a sense, if you think of a, a courtroom situation, um, you may have a, a crime that was committed. And if you call an eyewitness, that's very powerful testimony indeed. And often that will be enough to bring prosecution, conviction and so on. But if you have something that is completely irrefutable. So if today, of course, they would re refer to things like video evidence or something like that. 
if you have something like that that is undeniable well as good as the eyewitness accounts are there's something that, that in a sense trumps that that's better than that peter's going to give us just that now as we go in into the next verse so we've got to verse 19 and we read this we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now we'll look at the detail of the latter part of that in a while, but I just want to focus on this statement that Peter makes. So get the context here again, that this is after telling us that he'd been an eyewitness to the transfiguration. Now, previously, a few days before this, Peter up in Caesarea Philippi, had made that statement. Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. He says, you are the Messiah. I believe you are God's son. Peter acknowledges. And often it is the case with us that, you know, we have to make that profession of faith in who Jesus is before we get to see him as he is. Certainly that's the case here that Peter makes that profession of faith. And a few days later up on this mountain, and we believe it's this um, Mount Hermon in northern Israel. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but it's most likely because of the, the geography of the area. It was probably that mountain. It's the highest mountain in the whole of the Middle Eastern region. And up there, this is when Moses and Elijah turn up and Peter records this for us. Um, and uh, they see Jesus just glorified in front of their eyes. And then they hear this voice again, which Peter says clearly this was God's voice we had no doubt this was God's voice speaking to us now that is is a life-changing experience any doubt any questions Peter had have gone by this point as he's seeing that for himself and yet he then writes this I've got something even better than that to convince you of the truth of all these things again that transfiguration provided overwhelming evidence that Jesus was Messiah but we have something that Peter says here this more sure uh, the the Greek word uh, babaios, it's stable, it's fast, it's firm, it's unshakable, is really the idea that's being conveyed here. Why does Peter say this? Well, as I said a moment ago, you know, you and I cannot verify Peter's experience. We may believe that which is written is true, and certainly we have eyewitness testimonies throughout the New Testament. This isn't just a made-up story. But we can't actually personally verify it. So we have to trust his account. So this is where we need something that will convince even the hardest of skeptics if they are willing to consider. But that does beg the question, are they willing to consider? We have to always be mindful of what I call the ostrich syndrome. Now, this is actually a quote uh, by a man, Edwin Spencer, and he said this, there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is a proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is condemnation before investigation. In other words, if people are of the the mindset that they are unwilling to listen, unwilling to hear, well, it doesn't matter what information you present, it doesn't matter what proof you give them, it doesn't matter with which arguments you can convince somebody, if they have buried their head in the sand, so to speak, you will not convince that individual. 
It's the don't know, can't know, don't want to know kind of mindset. And sadly, there are many people in the world like that. And we need to be aware of that. We need not to waste too much time on people that are just not going to listen. But there are many people that will listen. And it's to those that we go and speak. Jesus said to them that have ears to hear. And we need to be discerning enough to recognize that if some people are just going to reject and not be prepared to listen, well, let's not exhaust our energies and our exertions. Of course, God can can do anything with anybody. But you have people like the pharaohs of this world that just harden their hearts. And there will be many people we come into like that or come into contact with. But when it comes to those that have got an ear to hear, that are willing to listen, well, then we need to be willing and prepared to share these things. Always be ready to give an answer to the people that ask you why you have this hope within you. So this uh, session, this teaching, uh, was something that I actually did uh, as part of the um, study on apologetics for the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry. Uh, and as it was based all around this verse, I thought it would be a good springboard to go into this. So the things we're just going to look at uh, is this. What is prophecy? We're just going to answer that first of all. And then the question, okay, so how sure can we be? Peter's saying we have the more sure word of prophecy. It's more certain than a physical, personal experience, an eyewitness testimony, something more certain. So how sure can we be? And we'll talk about some empirical evidence, something that can't be refuted. Then we have foretold prophetic proofs, things that have been told in advance before the events. And we'll talk about this in more detail in a second. Uh, but I'm just going to give you some examples. Uh, there's a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel about the ancient city of Tyre. Just staggering the detail. And we'll just briefly touch on it. There's 135 fulfilled prophecies in just 34 verses in the book of Daniel. And I want to just highlight that just so you become aware of it. I want to just touch on what many consider to be the most amazing prophecy of them all. And then finally, I want to springboard from that into just looking at an unexplained prophecy uh, or potentially unexplained. We're going to try and explain it. uh, That's found also in the book of Ezekiel. And these are undeniable proofs. You can go and investigate. You can pass these to your skeptic friends and say, go and look at this. And you try and come up with some explanation for these things. They are undeniable evidence and proof of the authenticity of the reliability of God's word, of the fact that it has to be supernatural in origin. And then finally, I'll ask a really important question. So what is the purpose of prophecy then? I mean, it can be really useful as an apologetic, as a means of um, reaching out and trying to convict and convince the ungodlies uh, in this world that there is a God that loves them, that cares for them, that sent his son to die for them, that the Bible really is true. And that's one of the purposes. But there's another uh, fundamental um, reason on a purpose of prophecy that Peter himself uh, alludes to. So we'll come back to that at the end. Okay. Well, let's very quickly just ask the question, what is prophecy? Well, prophecy is not merely a prediction. As I've said many times, we could try and predict the weather. We base it on some sort of data and some information we have. And we try and make an educated guess. And that's what we tend to do. That is what prediction is all about. It's making an educated guess that this or that may happen or come to pass. But prophecy is not that. Prophecy is not prediction. It's not just a a guess of what might be. Prophecy is history recorded in advance. You know, a lot of people, you know, commented to me before, but I love history, you know, but I, I do love history. I love things like Revelation. It's history, but it just hasn't happened yet. You know, there's a lot of things in scripture that is history, but we just haven't got to it. The reason we can talk of it in those terms is because God, who is outside of time, has revealed future history before it happens in incredible detail so that we can know he is God. 
This is one of the tests that God himself gives us. It's the unveiling of future events before they happen. Let me make it very clear. It's not predicting a future event. It's not guessing what might happen. It's not some vague, this might happen or this could happen. It's very specific, detailed, accurate statements of what will be. And sure enough, as time passes and those prophecies are fulfilled, we realize that they were detailed, accurate uh, statements of what actually took place. Now, of course, as I said, the only way it can happen is if someone were able to step outside of time, if you could step into a time machine and you could go forward in time, see what's happened, come back and then record those events. That's effectively what we're dealing with in prophecy. Now, in Isaiah 41, uh, we read this, verse 21 to 23. God says, produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. So God's saying, OK, you're talking about your gods and the things that you put your trust in. Well, bring them forth. Let them tell us what's going to happen in the future. Because God says this is something I can do. He says, show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. So this challenge that is placed before anybody in this world is you want to prove that a God is really a God. Well, let that God tell you what is going to happen in the days yet to come, in the years, in the centuries, in the millennia yet to come. Let him say it. Let us record it and let us be amazed when these things come to pass, because unless your God can do that, your God is not a true God. In Isaiah 46, God himself puts forward this challenge effectively. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. You know, there's a lot of religions in the world, a lot of things that people go chasing after in the hope that it's going to fulfill an empty void in their life. But God says, I'm the only God. You know, you haven't got time to invest in every single uh, book and piece of written information and learning that can be done to try and understand all the religions that exist on the earth. And you haven't got the time to do that. So we can take a shortcut because the Bible says it is the one true book, the one true book that God has given us. God said he is the only God. Now, if we can prove that statement to be true, we don't need to worry about the rest because it's already very, very clear that there is only one God, that the Bible really is his word. So we don't need to be an expert in every other belief and religion. We just simply need to know whether we can prove that statement true or false. If it's false, then fine, we go look elsewhere. But if we can prove it to be true, well, then we can trust God. God goes on and says that he can declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says the things I say will come to pass. This is one of the tests that God gives us to prove that he really is God. OK, so that's a little bit of what prophecy is. So how sure can we be? Well, William Thompson, or Lord Kelvin, as he was also known, made this statement. Until we can measure a thing, we really know very little about it. But that then begs the question, how do we measure certainty? Well, Peter's argument is that prophecy gives us just such a measure, that with prophecy, we can measure the certainty of the things that we believe. So 
I want you just to think about this for a second. I'll give you a prophetic challenge. I want you just to get the concept of what we're dealing with here. So first of all, I want you to think now, uh, if you've got a a, a bit of paper, you can scribble this down, that'd be great. Uh, Think of a person who's going to be born in the future. All right, that's the first thing I want you to try and do this morning. Think of somebody who's not yet been born. And I'm not talking about somebody who's, uh, pick somebody who's pregnant and, you know, uh, imagine their child being born in in eight months, nine months or whatever. I want you to think of somebody, it's going to be at least 500 years from now. So think of an individual uh, that's going to be born in the future. Now, I want you to write down where they're going to be born. Now, you might think, well, okay, I can just randomly pick any name and I can say that they're going to be born in this location. And there's a chance if you pick somebody called, uh, let's say, David, and they're going to be born in Scarborough, there's a chance that in 500 years, if everything just stays as it is, um, that there could be somebody called David born in Scarborough in 500 years' time. Okay, but it's going to get more tricky than that because I want it to be very specific in the details. I want you to detail a plot to kill this individual and how that plot itself is going to be foiled. I want you to record how and where they grow up. And again, it's going to be somewhere other than their birthplace, by the way. I want you to write down what people are going to say of this person. I want you to record in advance their genealogy, their family history. I want you to write down actual words that they will speak. I want you to record in advance the reaction of other people to those words, both friends and foes. I want you to write down what they're going to become known for. Why will they become famous? I want you to record how they're going to die and where they're going to be buried. And again, it's going to include very specific details about their death. Now, if I genuinely presented that as a challenge to you, you'd all just probably laugh and walk away because it's a preposterous challenge. There is nobody that could do such a thing that could come up with this type of detailed prophecy of an event, of an individual, a detail surrounding their lives, yet future. And yet, when we come to the Bible, we find exactly this. Just consider these. These are quotes about the Messiah from the Old Testament that are quoted in the Gospels, that are included in Scripture. First of all, that he was to be of David's family, numerous Old Testament references, and of course, they're verified in the Gospels. The fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now you could say all this was made up and contrived easily, but then you get to the tricky ones, like he would be born of a virgin. Now that's a little bit harder to just manufacture or make happen. Um, He would sojourn or flee to Egypt and then would come back from Egypt. Then he would live in Galilee. Uh, In fact, specifically, not just in the region of Galilee, but in the town of Nazareth. That he would be announced into his public ministry by an Elijah-like herald. That that itself would, his birth would occasion the massacre of children in Bethlehem. He would proclaim a jubilee to the world. That his mission would include the Gentiles. That the ministry would be one of healing. That he would teach through using parables. That he would be disbelieved and rejected by the rulers. That he would then have a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding in on a a donkey. That he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be uh, like a smitten shepherd. He would be given vinegar and gall. That they would cast lots for his garments, those antagonists that would put him to death. That his side would ultimately be pierced, and yet not a bone would be broken. He would die among criminals, among thieves. His dying words would be foretold in advance and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. 
all of these were prophesied at least 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's staggering to think about the detail in these prophecies that were all fulfilled in a single person. And of course, the resurrection would then later be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know took place in AD 70. These are incredible prophecies, the foretelling of future history before the event. But I want to just put some context around this so you realise just how unlikely these things are to have been fulfilled in any one person. Now, we know that the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek uh, by about 270 BC. It's what we refer to as the Septuagint version of the Bible. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible about 270 years before Jesus came. And within the Old Testament, we find there's over 300, over 300 prophecies, all detailing the coming of the Messiah. That's his first coming. By the way, there's about eight times more prophecies for Jesus' second coming than there are for his first coming. But that aside for a second, we've got 300 prophecies at least to deal with. And I want to just consider eight prophecies for a second and look at the chance that these could have been fulfilled in any one individual. So these Predictions or prophecies, as I'm saying, 500 years at least before the events that were recorded, that were translated. So there's no debate, there's no question about the fact that they were written down. We know they were written down. What's the chance that these could have happened in the life of any one individual? Now, let's take the first one. We're all familiar with that scripture from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come Shall he come forth unto me uh, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. So this prophecy we're looking at, um, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So the question we're going to ask is, what is the probability of any person taking at random or fulfilling this? Well, you can think that's, that's not a, a particularly difficult thing. People, of course, through history, have been born in Bethlehem. Um, we know roughly that the population of Bethlehem has never exceeded about 10,000 people throughout history. So at any one time, the chance of somebody being born in Bethlehem, we know we're about 10,000. We could say, to be fair, that one in 10,000 people be born in Bethlehem and then, the, as the prophecy states, would go on to be hailed as Israel's king. It's unlikely, it's extremely unlikely. We're kind of used to these uh, ideas, these probabilities at the moment. We, we're getting daily reports about the chance of people contracting COVID, uh, how many in a 100,000, for example, have got COVID symptoms in their area. So we're seeing these stats presented. So we're saying it's a very low, uh, it's a very conservative estimate this, but let's just assume that one in 10,000 people born in Bethlehem, could go on to be hailed as Israel's king. Now, this is unlikely, but let's just start with that point. Okay, let's go on to another prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. So the question that we're asking here is how many people have presented themselves as a king to Jerusalem riding a donkey? Well, Historically, not that many people have presented themselves as a king to Jerusalem. So let's work around the idea of, let's just say, uh, one in a thousand uh, through history that we've got uh, that would have presented themselves as king to Jerusalem. Third one. 
I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Now, if we look at this one, the question we're asking, how many people have been betrayed through history for 30 pieces of silver? Well, I only know of one, but let's assume that there's a number. Let's just say a thousand people through history have been betrayed, been betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. I think that's probably generous, but let's just go with that for now. The fourth one, the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter. Uh, a goodly price that I was prized at them, uh, at them, uh, at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So the same part of prophecy we were just looking at, but there's another specific detail here. And the details are given in Matthew 27 and so on. Um, let's uh, just work on this one. So 30 pieces of silver, uh, the occasion being a transaction in the house of the Lord. Who ends up with the money? Well, it's the potter. Let's just say all of those things coming to pass. Let's say one in a 100,000. I think you'll agree that's extremely generous. Very unlikely that's going to happen at any other individual. Let's just assume that. The fifth one, and what shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? Uh, then he shall answer those things which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Speaking, of course, prophetically of those wounds in Jesus's hands. Uh, of course, if you remember in the upper room, Thomas said, except I shall see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe and after eight days again, his disciples were with, within and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. See, the real problem here, the real pain in a sense from Jesus' perspective, was that Thomas didn't believe after all he'd seen. He still doubted, even though his friends all told him that Jesus was alive, even though Jesus had said he was going to rise from the dead. Thomas doubted there was this uh, unbelief. And Thomas said unto him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are they that have not seen me and have yet believed. So the question, how many people taken at random would have been wounded in their hands in the house of their friends? Well, it's so kind of an obscure prophecy. Uh, it's very generous to say, well, let's just say a thousand people, one in a thousand would fulfill that criteria. Sixth one, well, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Let's uh, ask the question, how many prisoners accused of a capital crime make no defense, even though innocent? Well, I'm sure some have tried to protest their innocence as they're going um, to execution. Um, going to the electric chair or whatever situation. But how many of them, again, make no defense? Don't try and justify it, even though they knew they were innocent. Well, again, let's be generous and say, well, maybe one in every thousand people in that situation. The seventh one, we're told that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Of course, we know that Jesus did exactly this. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. So how many died among the wicked and yet were buried with the rich? Again, very specific prophecy. Let's just say one in a thousand people maybe fulfill that prophecy. Psalm 22, the last one of these for now. The, the dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. It speaks very clearly of the method of um, uh, capital punishment, if you say, in a sense of being crucifixion. Uh, that was 700 years, by the way, this psalm was recorded before crucifixion was invented. 
uh, which in itself is incredible. But how many people, taken at random, have died having their hands and their feet pierced? Well, it's a very rare indeed. Let's just say one in 10,000 people uh, that maybe we can argue, uh, just to be very generous, uh, have died in that way. So that's our list. Let's just kind of put all these together. Being born in Bethlehem, riding as a king on a donkey, 30 pieces of silver being traded for, the money goes, uh, thrown in the temple, goes to the potter, wounds in the hands, no defence, even though he was innocent, he died with the wicked and yet put in a rich man's grave, he was crucified. Now, if we look at all of those probabilities, what we need to do is add them together to say, well, okay, we're not just talking about one of these, what's the chance of all eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by one individual, by one individual, okay, at one point and one place in one time in history. Now, the way we simply do this, um, some of you may be um, competent uh, mathematically and you're already ahead of this, so for those of you who are not so sure, all you simply do is add up the zeros when you're adding probabilities together. So the simple uh, calculation is that we've got one chance in 10 to the power 28. Now, that's a big number. We can't really understand it. I'll get our heads around it. Let me try and make it easier. We need to appreciate, of course, that, that we've had throughout the history of the world, let's just say generously, a population of 100 billion people, which is 10 to the 11, 11 zeros after it. So to get our accurate number of how likely this is, we need to take the, the chance of all these coming to, to pass with one individual, 10 to the 28. Let's divide it by the number of people that have lived at any one time. So we, again, divided by 10 to the 11, it gives us, you simply subtract the number. You end up with 10 to the power 17. All right. So our chance, cutting to the chase, of all of these prophecies being fulfilled by one person is that massive number that you can see there. It's actually one chance in 100 quadrillion now we're talking with the covid symptoms about you know maybe uh you know x number of people per hundred thousand maybe have um, covid symptoms or whatever else or test positive for covid um, so we're talking about a number that is so huge here uh, it's very difficult to get our heads around it let's try and put it into some context Imagine you had a bucket and you filled it up with silver coins, 10p pieces or whatever you will. Um, you know, well, a bucket isn't enough to hold that many coins. So how many buckets would you need to hold 10 to the 17 or 100 quadrillion coins? Well, it turns out that you're not going to get a bucket big enough. What you'd actually need is somewhere the size of the state of Texas in America. And you'd need to fill it two feet deep, two feet deep, with silver coins. And then the chance of you picking just one coin, let's say we flew overhead, we have one coin, we mark it with a red pen, we drop it into this mix, right over the whole state of Texas, which is huge, by the way, if you look at the size of the state of Texas, and the chance is that you then are allowed to go walking through two feet deep this pile of coins and you randomly pick out the right coin. That is the chance, the same chance, of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies this is math it's not something that's emotional it's not something that's a belief thing this is so clear in regard to the evidence we have now what happens if we just look at 16 prophecies and by the way there's over 300 to choose from and i'm not going to go through the details because many of the other prophecies are actually less specific sorry they're more specific they're less likely than the first ones we looked at but assuming there's no decrease in the likelihoods we need to do that same equation again. So let's assume we just add another 10 to 28. We add the numbers 10 to the 56 and divide that by the world's population, assuming, as we said a little while ago, gives us a number 
of some in the region of 10 to the power of 45. Now that is a number that is so big that we just really can't imagine the, the size. Let me just try and give you some context. It's looking at a number that would be 30 or a, a bucket, if you like, that would be 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun. Such a huge area, 30 times that. Now, that is actually only 15 times. If you imagine each one of these sections here, each one of these being 30 times the distance, or sorry, the, the distance from the Earth to the Sun, you, you multiply that by 30 times, there's only 15, as I say, and then you fill up the whole of this bucket with silver coins, if you could do such a thing, and then randomly picking one. That is how likely it is that just 16 prophecies could be fulfilled. And as I've already said to you, there's... Over 300 of these prophecies. So what's our conclusion from this? Well, we could be more certain that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel than that the, and, the, and that the Bible is true than we can about any other fact in the universe. That is uh, a little excerpt from Chuck Misler's uh, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. And he goes through that. And I remember hearing Chuck do that uh, teaching down in uh, Portsmouth some years ago at the Fact Conference. And the conclusion was, you know, that he is more certain that Jesus is the Messiah than any other fact in history, including his own name. And we can be absolutely sure. This is why Peter speaks about the more sure word of prophecy. It is utterly ridiculous and indefensible to argue that Jesus is not the Messiah when you start to consider all of the prophecies that were given at least 500 years before he came. Just want to give you a few other things, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So let's have a quick look at this one, the prophecy against Tyre. Now that's uh, the area you can see there, and right in the centre of the map is the area of Tyre. We're familiar, of course, Lebanon, Beirut. Uh, you're familiar; has been on the news recently, and so on, um, because of the explosion and things. But and also Israel just below it. Tyre, uh, a very famous uh, seaport back in the day. But this prophecy is given to us in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 26 that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy Tyre. Uh, well, many nations would be against Tyre as a result. Of this is what the prophecy says, that the dust itself would be scraped so that the, the place would become like a bare rock. Now, these are quite specific things prophesied before the events took place. OK, that the fishermen would actually spread their nets on the remains of Tyre. Now, that's very specific that the stones and the timbers of the city of Tyre would actually be thrown into the sea. And that Tyre would never be rebuilt. And that Tyre would never be found again. That there would be nothing left to find, effectively. Well, three years after this prophecy was given, Nebuchadnezzar did indeed come up against the city of Tyre. After a 13-year siege, Nebuchadnezzar finally broke down the gates, only to find the city almost deserted. Why? Well, the people had all fled to an island about half a mile off the coast. This new tire was almost impenetrable. Alexander the Great was the next antagonist that came against the city of Tyre. In order to take the new city of Tyre that's now on this island, he built a causeway, uh, or a kind of a pier in a sense, out from the mainland. And he literally, just as had been prophesied, scraped the remains of the old city into the sea and left just bare rock where the old city was. Now, upon those rocks, to this day, fishermen will then use them to lay their nets out to dry. So just as has been prophesied. Over the next 1600 years, many nations did attack and destroy Tyre until a final destruction in 1291 during the Crusades. 
That's what it originally was look. If you look at the picture on the left there, you can see this causeway built by Alexander. And over the years, that piece of land has gradually been filled in even further. So now the city is left. Uh, it also is actually kind of is joined to the mainland again. But I want to read to you. Uh, a quote by a man named Floyd Hamilton in uh, The Battle of the Christian Faith. He says this, It is also written, Thou shalt be built no more. And he says, Other cities destroyed by enemies had been rebuilt. Jerusalem was destroyed many times, but always has risen again from the ruins. What reason was there for saying the old Tyre might not be rebuilt? But 25 centuries ago, a Jew in exile, exile over in Babylonia looked into the future at the command of God and wrote the words, Thou shall be built no more. The voice of God has spoken, and old Tyre stands today as it has for 25 centuries, a bare rock, uninhabited by man. Today, anyone who wants to see the site of the old city can have it pointed out to him along the shore, but there is not a ruin to mark the spot. It has been scraped clean and has never been rebuilt. The great freshwater springs of Rizalane are at the site of the mainland city of Tyre and no doubt supplied the city with an abundance of fresh water. These springs are still there and still flow, but their water runs into the sea. The flow of these springs was measured by an engineer and found to be at least 10 million gallons daily. It is still an excellent site for a city and would have fresh water enough for a large modern city, yet it has never been rebuilt. Thus, this prophecy has stood true for more than two and a half thousand years. Just give you one example there of the accuracy of this prophecy, these prophecies. As I mentioned, in the book of Daniel, we have a, a period uh, sometimes referred to as the silent years. It's in chapter 11 of Daniel. Uh, it's actually not silent at all. Now, people talk about that 400-year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And yet all of that history was detailed in advance by Daniel. Now, as I said, you know, we've got some in the region of 135 prophecies all fulfilled in these few verses that are here. It takes us through the history of the kings of the south and the kings of the north. Now, just to get a little bit of background on this. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. Cassandra took the area of Greece and so on. Uh, Lysimius took the area of Turkey, as we refer to it. Uh, Seleucus then took the area, typically all to the uh, east of this, um, including Iraq, Iran and so on. But that butted right up against the area that Ptolemy took, which was the area of Egypt and so on. And of course, right in the middle of that is a little piece of land that you and I know as Israel. And so we have this detailed to and fro and changing of power between these two kings, the king of the north in regard to Israel and the king of the south in regard to Israel. Now, what I'll do when I send out the email tonight, I'll send out a precy of this um, so you can actually go through and look at the incredible historic detail that Daniel records in advance. And remember, again, the Septuagint was translated the Old Testament into Greek about 270 BC in the midst of all these things happening. So you can't say they were written after the event. Uh, includes, of course, the detail of Antiochus Epiphanes, his individual very much a forerunner to Antichrist who desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and so on for his own reasons. So again, that's that that area, king of the north, king of the south, both in regard to their relationship to Israel. Uh, but just an amazing portion of prophecy. As I say, it will take too long to go through the details now, so I'll send some notes out for those who want to study it a bit further later. Now, 
course, the what is often referred to as the most amazing prophecy is found in the book of Daniel. Um, way back in about 537 BC, uh, we have this incredible prophecy where Daniel uh, speaks through God's uh, angelic visitor. Gabriel comes uh, and gives Daniel this prophecy. He records it. Uh, Israel had been 70 years in captivity. That time was now over. About 50,000 Jews had returned home. Daniel, by now about 83 years old, had stayed in Babylon, presumably too old now to travel. But in chapter 9, he sets his heart to pray for the city and for the people as it's still laying in ruins. So he starts to pray. Um, and he becomes aware that there was a second period of 70 years decreed upon Jerusalem, not just the people, but upon the city. And this is what he starts to pray about. And we, of course, just from history, know that in 606 BC, we have the first siege of Jerusalem, starts a period of 70 years captivity for the nation. That finally is over in 537 BC. There's a second period of 70 years starting in 587. That's the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar as as Jerusalem itself is destroyed. And that triggers a period of 70 years to the day. And we can prove this to the day that then we have the decree of uh, Darius the Great in 518 to rebuild the temple. There's a 19-year period either end of that. Make a note of that. That's significant. We'll touch briefly on that in a moment. Well, Daniel, as I said, sets his heart to pray. It's probably one of the most impassioned prayers in Scripture. And he quotes almost verbatim Solomon's prayer in 1 Chronicles 6. And he confesses the sins of his people, starts interceding for the city. Uh, But partway through, he's interrupted by a knock on the door. And he realizes that this is effectively, you know, this is God now uh, intervening in this conversation. Uh, It's uh, it's actually, it's it's not a knock on the door, of course. It's the angel Gabriel that interrupts him midway through his prayer. And this is what Gabriel reveals to him. 77s are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Uh, that term, uh, we don't have got time to go into detail, but it's 70 weeks of years, basically. In uh, the Hebrew, there's various terms. There's Shabuim, there's a week of weeks. We have a week of years. We have uh, the, uh, the, um, the uh, um, weeks of months in terms of their uh, um, um festivities the jewish feasts and so on um but we're talking about 490 years that's what the the hebrew clearly uh, details implies there's other examples of this in scripture too uh those are just some of the other weeks that we have so we tend to think of just a week of seven days uh, but we have all these other ways that this word or these these ideas are used in the hebrew um so we have 490 years that were determined upon the people upon Israel and upon the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. There's very detailed, specific things that are being told, but just a quick summary. Okay. The prophecies for Israel and Jerusalem to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That gives you some idea of the scope of this to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, either most holy place or the most holy one, both apply. And so Daniel is told by Gabriel, so know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, that's speaking of Jesus who was to come, the Messiah, there should be seven weeks or literally 49 years and three score and two weeks or 434 years. 
and the street shall be built again and the wall notice what it says even in troublous times so this command is going to be given we've got these two time periods that are in, in uh, context in view and the street and the wall will be rebuilt and of course we know historically that that happened as the Jews returned from Babylon to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah the city eventually was rebuilt and that, that period would conclude the 483 years will conclude with the Messiah so that command to restore and build Jerusalem, we know through uh, various diligent study by a number of people, um, Robert Anderson being one of them, that that command was given on the uh, 1st of Nisan, 445 BC in the Jewish calendar, uh, or the 14th of March, 445 in our calendar, the way we would tend to look at it. Um, I'm not going to go through the details, but you can pinpoint this from the details that are given in Scripture. We know exactly which year it was. We know when um, Cyrus... Um, sorry, no, not Cyrus. We know when uh, um, um, Xerxes began to reign. We know when it was his 20th year and so on. So we can work out this period of time. But we know it's 483 years then from the command that was given to the coming of the Messiah. But let's be specific, because if you remember, God says that he bases his reputation on his ability to tell the future in advance. Well, uh, again, just remember that verse from Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. There's none like me who could declare the end from the beginning, God says. I'll leave it in the slides. I'm not going to go through it in detail. But all uh, times in Scripture when we have prophetic years dealt with, they're always based upon a 360-day prophetic year. It's just a, something you need to be sensitive to. Interestingly, all ancient calendars were based upon 360 days, and we could go through this list and look at them, but... Just to read a quote for you from Sir Isaac Newton. He said this, All nations before the just length of the solar year was known, reckoned months by the course of the moon and years by the return of winter and summer, spring and autumn. And in making calendars for their festivals, they reckoned 30 days to a lunar month and 12 lunar months to a year, taking the nearest round numbers. Whence came the division of the ecliptic into 360 degrees. Ever wondered why you have 360 degrees in a circle? Okay, for those at school, this is why you have 360 degrees, because all ancient cultures assumed our year was 360 days. And there's good biblical evidence and secular evidence to say that the Earth was once on a 360 day orbit of the sun. Another study for another time. But anyway, let's put this together. So we know then, based upon this, we've got 483 years. If we base it on 360 days in our year, we can do the maths. And it works out at 173,880 days. Is the specific time frame that Gabriel gives to Daniel from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the time the Messiah, the King, will come. Well, what happens... If we go from that date, we've got the date, and we jump forward exactly 173,880 days. Well, we come to the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we term as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. It was exactly that time period, 173,880 days as prophesied or given to Daniel by Gabriel. And notice, of course, in Scripture in Luke chapter 19, Jesus actually tells Jerusalem off for not knowing the time of their visitation. He said, this thy day. It was a very specific day. It was the only day that Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped as their king. Up until this point, he always said, my time is not yet come. You know, do, do not make me known and so on after you've done miracles. And this day, he arranges the whole thing. He sends the disciples to go and get the donkey. He rises to Jerusalem, intentionally fulfilling the prophecy on the very day. 
just one other building on from that. In the book of Ezekiel, we have a mathematical prophecy concerning the judgment on the nation. This is what it says. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. You have to make a model of the city, a little kind of scale replica model of Jerusalem and lay siege against it. So, boys, we've always done this. We've done this. We've had our little models with our toy soldiers or whatever. And you kind of you, you kind of build battle arrays and whatever. Well, this is exactly what Ezekiel's being told to do. Lay a siege against it. Build and cast a mound against it and set the camp also against it and set battering rams against it round about. And people are going to say, Ezekiel, what are you doing? Why are you building this model? Well, he's told, moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it and it shall be besieged and thou shalt lay siege against it. So this was a little object lesson. So the rulers of Jerusalem walking past as Ezekiel's laying there, no doubt somewhere outside the temple saw this going on and he says this shall be a sign to the house of Israel and then he's told this really bizarre thing lie thou also upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of the days thou shalt lay upon it thou shalt bear their iniquity so he's now going to be given a time frame for this for I've laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days 390 days so thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Israel and when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Now notice that last point. God says every day is for a year in this, this equation he's been given to work out. So Ezekiel prophesies for a total of 430 years of judgment to come upon uh, the nation of Israel. So these days he's lying there, equivalent to years. So there's 430 years of judgment that God is decreeing upon the nation of Israel. 70 years of that, of course, we know are accounted for in Babylon. It's very clear. They went to Babylon, they're in captivity for 70 years. That means we're left with 360 years of judgment unaccounted for, or so it would seem. But in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 26, we seem to find a clue of how to understand this. We're told, if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhor my judgments so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption and the burning algae. I don't know what that is. I don't want to know uh, that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. I mean, this just speaks of the history of Israel, doesn't it? And if you will not, notice what it says there, verse 18. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. All right, God says, I'm going to judge you for your iniquity. But if after that you don't turn back to me, I'm going to multiply your punishment by seven times. Now, very specific. In fact, as we look in this chapter, four times, God repeats the same thing. That if you don't turn back after I've brought judgment upon you, I will multiply your judgment seven times. Now, as we said already, Israel were punished for their disobedience for 70 years in Babylon, still leaving that 360 years unaccounted for. Israel still didn't hearken to him. So guess what? God does what he said in his word he would do. So applying Leviticus 26, we multiply the remaining 360 years by seven. That gives us a total of 2,520 years. 
Now, again, if we use our measures, we've already said 360 days in a prophetic year. This is the way God seemed to count. Multiply this 2,520 by 360, we actually get a very specific 907,200 days until Ezekiel's prophecy would be fulfilled when the judgment on Israel and the people and the city and the set will be completed. Now, how do we play this out? Well, we've already said the first siege took place in 606 BC of Jerusalem. 600 years before Jesus, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem and it begins that period of 70 years, which is fulfilled to the day, 25,200 days, is fulfilled by the decree that King Cyrus gives in 537. We also have, that's a period referred to as the servitude of the nation. But we also have a period, a second period of 70 years we mentioned, which regards the city itself. Okay, which began in the final siege when the city was destroyed uh, in uh, 587 BC, and that is finished in uh, 518 BC, uh, BC by the decree of Darius. And again, that's sometimes referred to, in fact, Jeremiah, uh, we have these titles, the servitude of the nation and the desolations of Jerusalem, two different periods of 70 years, starting 19 years apart. Now, if we apply the Ezekiel 4 and Leviticus 26 bit, we've got this big chunk of time still to add on until this judgment upon Israel will be fulfilled. Okay, specifically 2,520 years, or to be very precise, 907,200 days. So what happens if we go from that point, from the 537 BC, and we jump forward in time, 907? Remember, this is the servitude of the nation. This is the people themselves. If we take that interval, as scripture indicates we should, we come to the 14th of May, 1948, and the restoration of the nation. Now, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, just check your, check your heart still beating, because this is staggering. What happens if we look at the bottom line here? Well, we apply the same thing to this 70-year period when it finishes in 518 BC, exactly to the day, uh, 907,200 days. We add on to that, and guess what? That comes exactly to the 7th of June, 1967, which is when Jerusalem was again regained and restored to the people of Israel. Now, these are undeniable prophecies. They are there. They are written in the sands of time for all to see. This is staggering, overwhelming evidence of the proof that the Bible really is God's word. And by the way, this isn't stuff that we're just inventing or trying to make up to make it fit. You know, there's, there's various tools. By the way, you've got those 19-year periods. You know, I said at either end, between the first siege to the second siege, you have that 19-year period. And of course, between the 14th of May and between the 7th of June, you've also got that 19-year period as well. This is not a coincidence. These are all designed by the hand of the God. You've I've got various tools you can get. I purchased a tool called Redshift. It's not a Christian thing by any means. It's just where you can look at stars and the position of stars and you can track through history where they'd have been at any one time. I use this and I put in those dates. I put the date to start with the 587 BC. Uh, and if you notice, I put that jump forward uh, of 25,200 days. That's our 70 years in Babylon. That takes us precisely to the date when the uh, rebuilding of the, the city was allowed uh, from that point, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, if you then do the same jump in time forward, it comes forward to exactly the 7th of June, 1967. This, this is a secular tool that I use just to demonstrate the accuracy of this. We do the same thing going from the 
First siege uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, 606 BC, jumping forward the 70 years, 25,200 days. It comes exactly to 537, uh, in fact, the 21st of July, 537. And then you jump forward again, that big chunk that we have in the Ezekiel stroke Leviticus uh, prophecy, the same jump in time, and that comes exactly to the 14th of May, 1948. This stuff really is not made up. This is breathtaking. Anybody that denies scripture, really, really, they need to look at this. They need to consider it because it is overwhelming. So let's just conclude then. What is the purpose of prophecy? Well, Peter says in this verse we've been looking at that we have the more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. This world is a dark place. Prophecy is indeed a light. And notice until the day dawn and the day start arise in your heart. Notice there's an until in regard to prophecy. Now, prophecy is going to pass away. First Corinthians 13 verse 8 tells us that, that one day there will be no need for prophecy. Everybody will know. The whole world will be aware that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But it stands as this incredible beacon in the days in which we live that can draw people to God. And for us, it's a guiding light to bring us home so that we don't lose our way, so that we don't get discouraged, that we don't forget that God is in complete control and we can trust him. The last two verses say, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, uh, or, or holy men of God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So this is not man's work, it's God's. And the interpretation is not up to man to decide what he thinks, but is revealed to us through his spirit. Just to remind you of the great verse we're familiar with from 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that you know it's not entered into the heart of man uh, to, to understand the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And people stop there. They think, well, we can't know, we don't understand. But then verse 10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Brethren, we're not to be ignorant. God has given us so much. And, you know, we've touched on prophecy this morning. There is so much more we could look at, and particularly into the days in which we live. God is speaking very clearly through his word. <clears throat> There's some resources there I'll leave. If you want to dig into these things, if you want to find more evidence, more proof uh, to pass on to your skeptic friends, then I, I encourage you to do so. But next week, we're going to move on, Lord willing. Uh, the Lord has a return before then into chapter two of Second Peter. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just thank you this morning for this opportunity to look at these things. Oh, Father, I pray that you would just confirm in our own hearts, Lord, the truth of these things that we stand by, that we live by. That, Lord, we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Lord, we wouldn't be shaken, Lord, by the things that people say in this world by Lord, those who would uh, be antagonistic toward our faith, but Lord, that we would have such a confidence, not just in your word, but in you, the God who is unchanging. Lord, please help us just to know the certainty, as Peter's trying to convey to us through these verses, Lord, the certainty we have with these eyewitness accounts, with the more sure word of prophecy, that we can live as bright lights for you in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.